Primordial Soup Pod. My name is Aaron. And I'm Rustin. Every two weeks, Rustin and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, and evolution. And today, we are doing the amphibian episode. Yeah, I know you've been really excited about this one. I do like my frogs. So, without further ado, you want to get right into it? Oh, might as well. So, a little background. I did not have a good topic picked for this because I decided I wanted to do kind of a a happier episode. And most of the topics I looked at were kind of sad. So, there was a lot of invasive amphibians. There's things like the chytrid fungus. And those all seem kind of doom and gloomy. So I decided to pick a shorter and I think more positive topic. Okay. Now I'm even more excited. So I'm going to be discussing a small species known as Isaacson's tree frog. I'll go over its biology, its role in the environment, and the unique trait that makes it distinct from almost every other amphibian species alive today. All right. Hit me with it. Okay. So the scientific name of this frog is Xenohyla truncata, and this roughly translates to the strange short forest frog in ancient Greek. And these guys are in the tree frog family, which contains many different species of tree frogs widespread across the Americas. And at first glance, they just kind of seem like a typical rainforest tree frog. They're small, about an inch or so. Not much color, kind of a brownish orange with red eyes. And they do your typical tree frog things. They hop around, seek out moist environments, they sleep during the day, eat fruits, and pollinate flowers. Where did you say they were native to? (laughs) They're they're native to Brazil. I think you kind of skipped over the the twist. Oh, okay. Never mind. (laughs) Go through it again. Like you're... They do your... (laughs) (laughs) They do your typical tree frog things. They hop around, seek out moist environments, they sleep during the day, eat fruits, and pollinate flowers. Oh, wow. What a life. I have something that says pause for effect. It's literally in my notes right here. (laughs) They eat fruit and pollinate flowers. It's a frog. Okay. Yeah, that's that's unusual. Yeah, this is sure. the only pollinating and fruit-eating amphibian in the world. Wait, really? Yeah, okay, yeah, now we get the weight, really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did this evolve? Ooh, great question. So, first, I'm going to backtrack to explain what pollination is, just in case anyone may not understand. So pollination, of course, very important, is how many plants undergo sexual reproduction. And it's true that some plants can spread through cuttings or roots or through the wind. But this form of sexual reproduction is the only way to produce genetically unique offspring. Which is good, because that's how evolution works. Like I said, some plants can do this by wind or rain. And they use that to exchange pollen with other flowers. But in many plants, they use animals known as pollinators. And usually, the animal will seek out the flowers and some sort of food reward. So they'll go for, say, a little bit of nectar, pick up some pollen, and spread it to another flower. And as they travel between the flowers, they spread the pollen. It's usually a mutualistic relationship. 
Typically, your pollinators are usually insects. This is what people think of. So things like wasps, bees, flies, butterflies, etc. There's many different insect pollinators, and they're probably the vast majority. There's some less common pollinators as well, some larger vertebrates like hummingbirds for one, or fruit right. bats. And right. you can even get some rare groups of animals act as pollinators. Reptiles are infrequent but still occur. There's a couple of different lizard species. And there's some weird invertebrates like isopods as well. But this is the only amphibian known to act as a pollinator. So let's first start with the frog's diet. As I mentioned, this frog is an omnivore. Now, there have been a few species documented to eat fruits before, but this is probably the only one that shows a distinct preference for fruits. Like, they will actually seek it out. Most other amphibians, there's a good chance you can chalk it up as they were going for a bug and they accidentally ate something else with it. Although sometimes they might eat fruit, it's very rare overall. Sure, but you said they were only an inch long, so how are they eating these fruits? They're not big fruits. They're roughly an inch or so. It's very small fruits. Okay, so they're not capable of like taking a bite out of a fruit. They're swallowing the fruits whole? They kind of mash it up. They don't have teeth. They're not great at their job. So one study sent out to quantify to see how much fruit they're eating. They captured several of these frogs that were hiding in bromeliad plants and they examined their stomach contents over a long period. The study found that the frogs consumed plant matter from at least seven different species of plants, and this included trees, shrubs, and grasses. And the plant matter was found to be in the form of fruits, seeds, or even flower parts sometimes. So they're eating flowers, too. They couldn't even wait for them to become fruits? These are some really in, these are some impatient ass frogs, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> they, they're jumping the gun. They see it, they go for it. No one said they were the smartest frogs. Yeah, but they're so dumb they can't tell the difference between a flower and a fruit. Okay, have you ever seen a white tree frog before? No. So they're a very popular pet tree frog, and they are stupid. They are very stupid, and they will eat leaves. They will eat sticks. They will eat your finger. They'll try to. They'll jump on each other and bite each other. As soon as food comes out, they're leaping for whatever. Okay, sure, sure. But could you imagine how different Valentine's Day would be if whenever you gave a girl flowers, she just immediately devoured them because she <laughs> thought they were delicious? I mean, granted, an edible arrangement does blur the lines there, but come on. <laughs> what she do with the box of chocolates? Put it in a vase. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> A little confused today. <laughs> or just thinking frog-like. So, in addition to eating all these different plant parts, these frogs were also found to show preferences for certain plants at different times of the year. If you plot it out by each month, the frogs would vastly prefer one fruit for a month and then kind of rarely touch it throughout the rest of the year. So you can look at the plant species they eat and it's like, one month do this, next month we switch to this. Right, but are these just during periods when that fruit is available, or are these fruits that are available basically year-round? Even in the tropics, trees and bushes will flower seasonally and produce fruits seasonally. They don't do it year-round. That's a great point, and the paper even mentioned that that might be a discrepancy. So we don't know if they're actively selecting for these, or if 
that just happens to be what's available. Although I will say they still are eating these plants in very small amounts the other times of the year. But maybe there's just not much out there at that time. Got it. Got it. Okay. Now, this paper introduced two hypotheses for why the frogs may be eating these fruits. Number one, energy. So, studies have shown that frogs can indeed digest the fruits. They may act as a supplemental source of energy. And, you know, that can be a really quick pick-me-up source of energy, too. These frogs do still eat insects, by the way. They're not solely reliant on fruits. But, you know, it could act as like a... uh, It's easier to digest. It gives you a quick burst. It could be really helpful in some situations. Okay. Yeah, I was just about to ask that. Because even hummingbirds which are known strictly as pollinating birds still will supplement their diets with insects because they still need those they still need protein and other things that they don't get with from the nectar and flowers yes and we've talked about this before but generally speaking in the animal kingdom everything is an omnivore it's all about ratios though yeah there are very few animals that either eat solely meat or solely plant matter it it gets blurred true true in a lot of cases it's accidental but yeah your point does stand and the other hypothesis that was introduced is that these fruits may provide the frogs with a toxin to defend from predators and i'm not too certain about this one personally although to its credit it does exist so poison dart frogs actually get their toxin from a small mite species that makes up their diet and these are some of the most poisonous frogs on earth they don't actually produce their own toxin. Right, right. That that does happen with other species. But my question with these frogs would be the fact that they seem to be switching between different fruits at different times of the year. So if they were getting some kind of toxic immunity or toxic, you know, defense mechanism from these fruits, it would stand to reason that they're either only getting that immunity during part of the year or they're only getting that defense at part of the year or they're feeding on toxic fruits year round. And I think that either situation is kind of unlikely. To its credit, some of these plants, actually the three most readily consumed plants of this study, all contain toxic compounds. All right. Well, that answers my question. (laughs) (laughs) There's a later study which tried to test them for poisons and the results were inconclusive in this. So the jury is still out on this hypothesis as they're getting toxins from the plants. And I would also really wonder how that evolved because yeah, I feel like that would be a byproduct of them going to eat the flowers or the fruits for nutrition, right? See, even like, you're, see, see, now you're getting them confused, Aaron. <laughs> the frogs are rubbing off on you. <laughs> the poison dart frogs, they didn't eat the mites because they go, ooh, I can eat these mites and take their poison. They probably ate the mites and then got the poison, and the poisonous frogs survived and reproduced more, and then probably developed brighter colors over time. Okay, that makes sense. So it's not like the frogs went in with some sort of preconceived notion that I'm going to eat these and get their poison. So even in this situation, I think the frogs would originally have to go to the fruits for food, and then if they gained a toxin byproduct afterwards hey even better let it bonus right but like of course the frogs didn't originally think that they were going to eat the mites and get their poison 
like anything that thinks that they're going to eat something poisonous so that they themselves can become poisonous is crazy because <laughs> what happens in 99 times out of 100 is that you just get poisoned. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't usually work out for you. Maybe they're thinking, ah, but I'm built different. I can take this one. Right. Believe it or not, poisons aren't really good for you. They've been taking it for years to build up their immunity. So if they're ever in a situation where they have to poison one goblet to trick an adversary, they can actually do both. <laughs> I was just about to say, <laughs> are these mites filled with iocane powder? <laughs> yeah, so I'm leading towards the energy hypothesis, but, you know, the toxicity one is still out there, and it could very well be both. Okay. And maybe they even have a somehow they have a taste preference for the toxic compounds. Don't know. That's not known yet. Someone study it. Yes. Scientists listening, go study. So, of course, this first study left a few questions. First, of course, we already talked about the two hypotheses. Were they eating fruit for additional energy or their toxins to defend from predators? And the second question, which is even bigger, is how are they foraging in their environment? So here's kind of the hang up. These frogs, I said they were in Brazil. You're probably thinking this is a very moist rainforest area, right? Not necessarily. Well, yeah, it's actually a sandy coastal region that's very dry. Really? Yeah, it's in a region of Brazil known as Espirito Santo. And it's in an area called Restingas. And these are actually a sand, duny, and nutrient-poor region. And it's dominated by shrubs and medium-sized trees. Like I said, it's coastal, so you also get a fair bit of salt influencing that region as well. Yeah, this doesn't seem like a region that is well-suited to amphibians. Now, so these frogs, because of this, spend all day inside plants called bromeliads. And for anyone who doesn't know, bromeliads kind of look like large upside-down pine cones. And these plants trap water, and they can act as, like, small oases. And they can be found on the ground or growing in other trees as well. A lot of them are popular houseplants. Right. Where they become mosquito breeding grounds. Absolutely. Actually, they can be a uh, habitat for many different animals. Many frogs were breeding them. Oh, well. sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But definitely mosquitoes. Yeah. So, like I said, these trap water act as habitats for the frogs. Well, not only do the frogs breed and live in these bromeliads most of the time, they also eat insects almost exclusively from the bromeliads. Oh, wow. The bulk so of insects that they eat are species that already are living in these bromeliads. And it kind of raises the question, if you live, breed, and eat inside these bromeliads, why would you even bother to leave to feed on fruits at all? Yeah. Definitely. Man. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't, especially when the outside is very dry and hostile towards a small frog. And why would you also leave and be like the only amphibian that feeds on fruits? Right. It kind of sounds like you're abandoning the three birds in hand to go after the half a bird in the bush. It doesn't seem like a worthy effort, but the frogs are doing it. In fact, they even found sand in their digestive tract, which means that they also get on the ground 
to move between plants, between trees, which again well, seems like a big risk for a small little frog. Okay, and also these frogs are just really bad at eating. Now they're eating sand. <laughs> Come if on! If you've ever seen a frog eat, they're not elegant. There's not a lot of grace or decorum. Right. And these frogs are the poster child for that lack of grace and decorum. <laughs> yeah, frogs are very much of eat first, ask questions later, and hope it is edible. It is why many frogs, they have the ability to kind of upchuck their stomach because so often they will eat like a wasp or a bee and then realize afterwards, oh, damn, that was a wasp or a bee. And then they have to upchuck their stomach and scrape it out. Yeah, that's why you don't see many frogs hosting shows on the Food Network, because they just eat the food immediately and then just be like, all right, what the hell was that? (laughs) And then they got to regurgitate it, and the studio audience really hates that bit. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) The whole whole bit is sponsored by (laughs) Pepto-Bismol. Because everyone gets an upset stomach (laughs) after watching it. Exactly. So, in 2023... There is another study on these frogs, a very recent one, and it got even weirder. So in this study, they found that the frogs were feeding on the fruit of the Brazilian milk tree. Not super unusual given what we know about the frogs, but they were also feeding on the nectar of the trees as well. And that was a new behavior for them. They would find these flowers in the trees and kind of just hop inside to drink the nectar. It's not a very elegant process. They kind of just plop in. A lot of animals that feed on nectar usually have a sort of tongue or proboscis. So like a straw, they can just stick it in there. These frogs kind of dive in head first. So they took the Kendrick Lamar approach to drinking. In other words, they found the pool full of nectar and they dove in. (laughs) Maybe. All right, that's a good joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll leave it in just for you, but I don't get it. That, no, I, I'm going to stand by that joke. That's a good joke. Uh, I, I don't listen. Anyway, uh, yeah, they just hop inside and they feed on the nectar. During this process, they found that pollen was getting stuck on these frogs. And if these frogs are going to feed on multiple flowers in one night, that's pollination. They're spreading the pollen. Precisely, yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but they also found that depending on the fruit species, they would actually swallow the seeds and act as a dispersal mechanism as well. So if the fruits were small enough to swallow whole, they would, and any seeds inside would pass through his poop and get spread around. But they noticed that some fruits that they fed on, they couldn't swallow the seeds. And I'd really love to see a video of them eating on said fruits because they don't have teeth. Almost no frogs have teeth, or true teeth at least. Right. So they're kind of just gumming it, just chewing on it. I don't know how effective that is. Again, it makes me wonder why they feed on fruits at all. They're very ill-equipped to handle them. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a baby trying to eat an apple. That is the perfect example, a baby trying to eat an apple. They're they're not good at it. you got to mush it up for them. Right. There's a reason Gerber doesn't sell fruit. They sell mush. This paper also found that we actually have some evidence of frogs actually squabbling over the fruits. Not like fighting, more like aggressive hopping on each other. Kind of a light push 
it's it's a frog. They can't really fight that much. <laughs> right, I was but it goes to, to show that this is a resource that is worth competing over. So it, it's got to mean something to them. Sure, sure. And, you know, if frogs were going to fight, I would expect them to just like, you know, jump on each other. I don't know what else they do. That's Maybe they, some... they, they kind of ram each other. Maybe they got some nasty like rear kicks or something going on. <laughs> I don't know. This paper sort of backed up the energy hypothesis as to why frogs eat fruits and nectar. These are sources of quick energy. Frogs sure. typically don't exert a lot of energy constantly. They are ectothermic. They don't have high metabolisms like a, a bird or a mammal. Mm -hmm. But they do require a lot of it in the breeding season. So this is what the paper kind of suggested. Because for males in this time, they do a great amount of calling and that's taking energy. I mean, you're screaming all the time. That'd really drain you. And the females, well, they have to produce eggs. And that uses a lot of calories. So right. they propose that these nectars and fruit feeding behaviors may grant them extra sugars to use in the breeding season. And this is easily digestible. So something you can kind of snag on the go, get some more energy. So what you're saying is that much like college students binging Red Bull during final season, these frogs really just need a quick boost of energy to get to get through a really strenuous period. Oh, my God. If we gave them caffeine, they'd go wild. I think they might just explode. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> they, they get really confused eating all the sand and flower bits. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And I will say this doesn't mean the toxin hypothesis is not applicable. I think that's still possible. Although the tree in question here is not poisonous to my knowledge. In fact, I think the Brazilian milk tree is sometimes eaten by people. I think sometimes it's nectar is or its fruits are, huh. albeit somewhat regionally. Okay. But they still feed on other toxin plants, several of them, actually. So I kind of have two final points to make about this. One is the first question I thought of. Do we have evidence that the frogs and the trees are co-evolving together? We do see this happen with a lot of pollinators and pollinates. Lots of bees and flowers co-evolving. I don't know if this is the case here for the frogs. So even though we have documented them spreading pollen... We have no idea how effective they are at this. They might be really bad at this. This might also be very infrequent for them as well. Well, if their dining skill is any indicator, then they're probably terrible at pollinating too. <laughs> probably. Not to mention this tree also utilizes many different species of insects, like butterflies, bees, and flies to pollinate its flowers. It doesn't make sense for a large tree to rely on a single species to pollinate it. That does happen, but usually that's for a smaller plant like an orchid. Right. Right. So I don't think the two are co-evolving in that sense, that they are effectively relying on one another. But I do think the frogs are evolving to take advantage of it. So I wonder if they're pollinators or if they're kind of just exploiting this. Yeah, that's a really interesting point to consider. It kind of highlights the gray area surrounding a lot of mutualisms. Like we kind of have this idea that mutualisms are very rigid, like where you have just two species that are benefiting each other and have this helpful relationship. But 
in a lot of cases, mutualisms kind of evolve in a really messy way, you know, like where you have one species that's just kind of exhibiting this consistent behavior and another species just decides to use that behavior or maybe facilitate it for its own purposes, or I guess decides is the wrong verb to use, but uh, finds it beneficial to use that behavior for its own benefit. Mm -hmm. And I believe I heard at one point that a lot of mutualism actually evolved from parasitism. Yes. That's another aspect of this whole discussion. That's really, really fascinating. Yeah. That pollinating the evolution of that is a very fascinating topic, which I never thought would be incorporated in an amphibian episode, but here we are. So yeah, there's a lot of questions to ask about these. I think another interesting thing that maybe backs up the exploitation part of things is that these frogs, as I mentioned, are not great at feeding on nectar. And a great example in this paper is there were some non-native iris flowers in this, and the frogs couldn't really... <laughs> they just ate the whole flower to get the <laughs> nectar. <laughs> <laughs> These flowers were also smaller. The frogs couldn't get inside them, so they just kind of bit off the, half the flower, which really doesn't benefit the plant at all. Imagine the amount of glass these frogs would eat if they really wanted to drink a beer. <laughs> They'd be chewing the whole thing up. They would swallow it whole. Right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> It'd be terrible. You give them a, a happy meal, and they're eating like 36% of that meal is going to be the bag. <laughs> right. It's like Charlie from Always Sunny and the sticker. Except the sticker <laughs> covers the pear. He always eats the stickers. Yeah, so uh, interesting point there about whether or not this is really helping the tree, if it's even considered pollination. At least in this tree, because the flowers are large enough, they can get in and out, I think, without damaging the flower too much. And my second point is that even though feeding on fruits is rare in frogs, this makes a lot of sense for it to happen. If you have a carnivore that is going to start feeding on plants, fruits are high in sugars and easy to digest, 9 out of 10 times they're going to go for that. So animals that feed on grasses or leaves, as we've discussed, require extensive adaptations to gain energy from nutritionally poor plant matter. This usually involves very long digestive tracts and some sort of gut symbiote living inside them to help break it down. And even then, they might have to regurgitate it and pass it through a couple times. Right, right, okay. But fruits and nectars are the opposite. They're just there. It's a good source of energy just sitting right in front of you. And that's why many different carnivorous mammals can and will feed on fruits and nectar. Right, yeah, it's... Relatively easy to break down. In fact, we've seen many groups of animals actually move away from carnivory to fruits and nectar. One great example, fruit bats. Because it's in the name, they eat fruits. Now, I'm fairly certain that their evolutionary ancestor of all bats was not a fruit eater. I mean, you can look right. at the teeth on those things. You can go like, they don't look like fruit eaters, <laughs> at least. But... It makes sense for them to feed on fruits more so than leaves. You know, the fruits have a lot of energy in them. That's something that they can reasonably shift to. It's not too much of a big difference for them. 
Sure. Actually, there's a uh, there's another group of mammals that I've heard about making the shift to uh, almost exclusively fruits and nectar. Um, I believe they're called vegans. <laughs> it seems to be a popular trend. Yeah, who knows where that's going to go in the future. <laughs> Rustin says this. He's only like two degrees away from a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> For that the is... record, Rustin is pescatarian. <laughs> That is so true. So he's one bad day away from you guys. <laughs> Which is why I felt a little bit more comfortable making that joke. <laughs> Going back to the uh, carnivores switching to fruits or nectar, another great example of this is actually the only omnivorous spider species. It's actually a jumping spider that feeds on a protein-rich nectar from acacia trees. Oh, cool. Which is pretty cool. I mean, it's still an omnivore, but just goes to show you that even though spiders are very much adapted to eat other bugs they can kind of shift easily to this high protein or high sugary substance made from plants but they can't shift to a leaf okay right right yeah, so again it's not super far-fetched that the frogs do this but i'm so glad that it happens i think yeah. that's cool it gives us something really cool to talk about and that's about my piece. I'll be completely honest. I did not have any idea this existed prior to research. I just Googled amphibian pollinator, and I was wondering if one existed, and it, it didn't. And I was like, all right, yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> it was literally, uh, <laughs> I kind of hit a rut. And I'm like, you know, there might be one of these out there. And of course, there's still very much to learn about this frog. We don't know how much plant matter makes up its diet. We don't know how big a role it plays in pollination or seed dispersal, or if it's even pollinating at all. Maybe it's actually hurting the flowers more than it helps them. Right. And like most amphibians, unfortunately, it is considered threatened. In this case, it's mm. due to its very small habitat range. Regardless, okay. it's a very unique evolutionary oddball, and I hope we can keep it around for years to come. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, that was really cool. All right, what do you have for me? Okay, so being blunt, often when I choose a topic, I don't usually consider what you'll what you're going to talk about because usually you pick some rather obscure topic that I would have never even considered like a pollinating frog. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that we started this podcast, which is that our interest in mannerisms are similar, but our ways of thinking are often very different. So we choose different topics or things to talk about, but we talk about them in very similar ways. However, in this case, I wanted to leave you with plenty of space because I chose this topic to give you a chance to shine. Oh, thank you. Right, exactly. I figured, you know, you, you pick the bird episode, I should give you the amphibian episode. So with that in mind, I did consider your potential topics, and I bet that you'd discuss a frog of some type. Correctly, I might add. So... I'm going to talk about a salamander. Ah, perfect. Specifically, the Japanese giant salamander. Even better. Exactly how familiar are you with the species? I know they look cool. I've seen that them in the zoos. They're like a big sentient sleeping bag. Kind of, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> the best way to describe them. But they're cool animals. They really are, yeah. And The more I dug into it, the more I found out just how cool they are the japanese giant salamander as the name suggests is native to japan and 
uh, lives in high mountain streams. As the name also suggests, they are quite large. The adults are often around 1.5 meters or about 5 feet long, which is huge for a salamander. Um, That's huge for any amphibian. I got to add here, because the largest frog, to my knowledge, is maybe... That'd be the Goliath frog of Africa, and that is maybe like a foot, a foot and a half in body length, not with the legs stretched out. But the right. largest salamander overtakes that by leagues. Oh yeah, yeah I do absolutely. wonder why we have giant salamanders and not giant frogs. You know, I never thought about that before, but that's really, really interesting to consider. In the case of these salamanders, it is worth noting that some of that length is the tail, but the tail is more muscular and kind of paddle shaped. So it's not like it's this weirdly inflated length figure like your monitor lizard from the last episode that were 10 feet long, but had this really long skinny tail. So they weren't really as long or as yeah, large as the away. 10. Right. They weren't really as large as the 10 foot length would seem to indicate. As far as appearance, like you said, they kind of look like large sleeping bags because the salamanders have lots of wrinkly skin. This is because they use the skin to breathe underwater. So by having more skin, they have more surface area over which to breathe making the process a lot more efficient. And the mottled complexion also provides some camouflage in their aquatic environments. This is also why they live in cold mountain streams, because the water is high in oxygen, because it is rapidly moving and falling, which provides a lot more opportunity for oxygen to dissolve in the water. And the cold water can hold more oxygen than the warm water. So it's a good place for the salamanders to live. As for what they eat, they hunt a variety of different prey animals, mostly fish and a lot of crustaceans, and they eat them by engulfing them rapidly by opening and closing their mouths, which is pretty common for ambush predators in aquatic environments. A lot of fish feed this way, like largemouth bass here in North America feed this way. The life cycle is pretty typical, at least for a salamander. Um, they start off as eggs, then have a larval stage, and eventually undergo metamorphosis into their adult form. What is remarkable here is their longevity, because... These salamanders can live for 50 or even 80 years, which you wouldn't expect from an amphibian, necessarily. Yeah, that um, is pretty rare for an amphibian. Right, right. They're definitely an outlier in that regard. These salamanders are also nocturnal, so they have pretty poor eyesight and rely instead on smell and especially touch to hunt and interact with their environment. These salamanders basically covered in these sensory cells that are wired to tiny hairs on their bodies. And these hairs can detect minute vibrations in the water caused by prey or other organisms moving around. This whole process is really similar to what is known as the lateral line system in fish. We, as humans, would consider this a form of touch, but to me, it's almost more like hearing than it is touch which sounds weird, but let me explain a bit here. Because when you think about how our ears work, they funnel sound waves through our eardrums to our hearing organs, or cochlea, which contain lots of tiny hairs. And then these hairs transfer the sound waves into electrical signals that are then passed onto the brain. So just as the salamanders have these tiny hairs that you know pass vibrations in the water onto, into their nervous system, we have hairs in our ears that pass sound waves to our brain 
through hearing. So that's why I say it's a lot more like hearing than it is like touch. If they couldn't get into a concert and they maybe all like shuffled to the side of the building and put their hands on the wall, they could still get the same effect. Maybe, maybe. But if they really wanted the true effect, um, they just flood the concert hall. <laughs> Might mess with the acoustics a little bit. Right. Assuming all the electronics still work underwater. Big if, but you never know. It might work. Another really cool aspect of these salamanders is their defense mechanisms. So despite the fact that they're relatively large and don't have any natural predators when they're fully grown, they are hunted by humans sometimes, but I said natural predators. They do have a remarkable defense mechanism. So when they're threatened, they will secrete a white, sticky, smelly substance that could actually be toxic to potential predators. So you say could be. Do we not know? Not really. There are <laughs> so no one wants to study it, is what you're telling me. <laughs> well, yeah. I feel bad really. for the poor guy who gets stuck with that for his master's thesis. Yeah, that poor guy, just like in the circle of all the grad students, has to be like, yeah, I'm studying salamander jizz for my project <laughs> like in the circle of grad students that guy probably reeks they wouldn't even share a room with him uh, yeah that's what i'm saying he's an unpopular guy <laughs> but this defense mechanism could be more useful when they're smaller and more subject to predation from fish and larger invertebrates and they just kind of maintain this ability into adulthood so it could be something like that because these salamanders do continue growing throughout their lives. So even though they undergo metamorphosis, it's not like they're at their full size. So they still experience some predation at that stage of their lives. Another fun fact about this particular ooze is that its odor, anyway, is apparently similar to a lot of Japanese peppers. Which is why their common name in uh, Japanese actually translates to, quote, big pepper fish, unquote. Okay, so maybe the grad student is liked after all. Maybe, yeah. If all the other grad students like peppers. Who knows? It's like Old Spice. Right, right. Very, very Old Spice. 50 to 80 year Old Spice, in fact. <laughs> Beyond being the big pepper fish, they do actually have some cultural significance in Japan. In fact, there is some speculation that the Japanese mythical creature known as the Kappa might have been inspired by these salamanders. Do you know anything about this particular being? I have heard of it. Yeah, I I think it's what it's like the uh, inspired the turtles in Mario, right? Yeah, yeah. So I kind of did more of a deep dive than I would normally have done for a mythical creature for this podcast. But I figure you've discussed cryptids in the past, so I can do a little bit on the Kappa. So these creatures are crazy little water demons in Japanese folklore that are often depicted as yellow, scaly lizard people. And they're fond of pulling children into the water and drowning them and then pulling out their organs. So not very friendly. However... The water is their source of power, so they can't spend too much time away from the river. Furthermore, a consistent part of Kappa folklore is that they have a hole on top of their head where the, their water can leak out. So the idea there is that 
if you ever encounter a kappa outside of the water, you can defeat it by getting it to bow. <laughs> hey, bud, your shoes untied. Literally, yeah. <laughs> and then all the water leaks out, and they become and they lose their powers and become paralyzed. They also apparently have this incredible love of cucumbers. I swear, I'm not making this up. In some areas, people have actually been known to throw cucumbers into the river as a way of placating the kappas. Also, apparently you shouldn't eat cu cucumbers and then go swimming because that will just make the kappas want to attack you even more. Now, I mentioned all this to kind of just kind of go over like how this legend is really weird and actually kind of cool if you think about it. But we have our own traditions around uh, eating and swimming like it never made sense to me that you wait 30 minutes after eating to go swimming. But you wait 45 if you eat a cucumber. <laughs> That's when the essence wears off. Right. In Japan, yes. Yes. They call it the cucumber clause. Right. It's a little little sub bit to that truth. Right. Yeah. Any jokes aside, this animal is such an... This animal, by this animal, I mean the salamanders is such an important part of life in Japan that it has received the highest level of protection from the Japanese government. It has actually been designated a, quote, special natural monument, unquote, by the Agency for Cultural Affairs since 1952. Oh, good for them, as they should. Right, right, absolutely. It's something to be proud of. There's not a lot of, well, there's not a lot of amphibians in general, but really giant ones, that's very rare. Right. Right, so we really should want to keep these guys around because they're very cool. Yeah, obviously have some cultural significance in Japan. This does lead me to the part of the bit where I discuss their conservation threats. It's not as bad as you might think. I would say the salamanders are doing just okay, which for amphibians is pretty darn good. Nothing to scoff at. Right, so they are listed as a near-threatened species. Not a threatened or even endangered species, but a near-threatened species. That's better than I thought. Right, exactly. Because they do suffer from the construction of dams, which will restrict their movement and fragment their habitat and limit their breeding grounds because they like to burrow into the stream banks to lay their, uh, to lay their eggs. And so... When a lot of these rivers and streams become, you know, hardened by concrete walls that people will put up, they really don't have any place to burrow. And so their habitat shrinks as a result. Yeah. And these kinds of effects are very common for aquatic species and rivers throughout the world. Dams negatively affect fish in this way as well. We've tried all different kinds of measures here in the United States, particularly in the Pacific Northwest with salmon to try and get the fish to go around dams by building fish ladders or all different kinds of different contraptions with varying degrees of success. I think generally speaking, anything big is impacted a lot more by dams. True. True. Because it puts a much broader chokehold on the range. And then if there is any sort of fish ladder or like exclusion device or something to get around, I mean, a sturgeon is not making it through that thing. Right. 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 An eel might, but not a sturgeon. Yeah. These dam effects aren't just limited to the salamander. It's really a worldwide problem where we've erected these essentially giant walls on rivers. And so the species that are used to having free roam through miles and miles of river are now far more restricted and their populations suffer as a result. The other main uh, conservation threat for the Japanese giant salamander is 
the Chinese giant salamander, which is considered an invasive species. At the top of this bit, I talked about how the Japanese giant salamander is this incredibly large salamander, but it's actually the second largest salamander in the world. The largest is the Chinese giant salamander, which, again, as the name suggests, is native to China. And so when they interact, they do compete for a lot of the same food. But really, the concern is not necessarily competition for food. It's a little bit different because it's possible for the two species to hybridize and produce offspring together. The issue is that the offspring are not viable. So this negatively impacts the population of the Japanese giant salamander because their young with the Chinese giant salamanders cannot produce more offspring, can't continue the population. Ooh, yeah. So that's a it's essentially a cutoff in their bloodline. Precisely. Not to mention, they live a long time. Do you know how old they have to be to breed? I did not find that information, no. I, I don't either, but I'm guessing they probably have to get a pretty big size or a fairly old age, which means you're probably laying a lot of eggs in hopes right. that a couple offspring make it to adulthood. And then you have to hope that those couple offspring aren't hybrids because then it cut off. You're done. Precisely. The hybridization problem is very real for the Japanese giant salamander, which was a new conservation threat that I hadn't seen before, which is saying a lot because, you know, I've been really interested in in conservation since I was a little kid and I've seen all different kinds of issues encountered by all different kinds of species. Hybridization is relatively uncommon, at least for me in my perspective. Yeah, I can't think of any others. It's got to be like a tree or something out there. Right. I'm sure it exists elsewhere, but I hadn't heard about it. And so reading about these Chinese giant salamanders and their effects on the Japanese giant salamanders was unexpected, to say the least. So it's a cool thing to mention. But um, yeah. That's pretty much my bit on the Japanese giant salamander and all the cool aspects of it and how it's viewed in Japan and revered really in Japan. All right. Well, really cool. It's a Japanese salamander. It's a great salamander. Sure. I have seen one in a zoo. They, uh, they're cool looking, but they don't do much. True. Well, that's partially because we see them during the day. They're nocturnal. Well, I also, I don't think they were super, like, they, they weren't very high metabolism to begin with. Sure, sure. But, I mean, you wouldn't look very active if the salamanders tried to look at you during the nighttime. Yeah, I guess not. If they somehow managed to weigh into my bedroom, <laughs> right. I'd probably be doing a lot of moving either. Right, right. It is a cool experience just to stand next to it I, I remember seeing one in the zoo and it's just right next to me it's, it's massive i mean besides the glass it's only like seven inches away from you right big animal right. They, they don't call them giant salamanders for nothing they are truly massive animals now they are big absolutely yeah. and also a, a little bit of a, a little bit about the, the really really fascinating mythical creature known as the kappa which they inspired by i guess being the only weird animal living in the streams 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. Like, if somebody saw the salamanders are roughly five feet long, the kappas are generally depicted to be about the size of, like, a 10-year-old child. So, you know, if somebody saw a salamander in the stream and wasn't sure what it was, you could see how, you know, the legend of the kappa would grow from that. Because people are like, oh, they're like huge scaly or slimy things in the stream and we don't know what they are. And so all of a sudden that kind of develops into this mythic creature, which has happened across the world. Um, yeah, I didn't discuss the capital, like make fun of the folklore or anything because no, that no, happens I throughout love the, the world. Folklore. But... And Lord knows we have our own weird folklore. So, Oh, God. Oh, God. Tell me about it. Mermaids, for one thing. Mermaid Bigfoot. There is a <laughs> multiple season show called Finding Bigfoot. They oh, never find God. them because if they find Bigfoot, well, if they find Bigfoot, the show's over. Right. So it's literally against their interest to find Bigfoot. <laughs> right. They're, they're you need to carry it on a stick. I mean, maybe they have their own spinoff called Finding the Kappa. And I don't know. One guy turns to the other and says, we're going to need a bigger cucumber. Right, it's kind of like How I Met Your Mother. As soon as they meet the mother, the show's basically over. Not incentivized to introduce that character or have that outcome. Anyway, with my bit being over, uh, I'd like to make a suggestion. Alright, what do you got? Deep Sea Part 2. You want to do a Deep Sea Part 2? Yes. We've never done a Part 2. Yeah, but I got a good one, man. Can you connect it to anything else? I got to think about it. Uh, maybe I could connect it to something else. But um, I, it doesn't. Does it happen to be a crab by any chance? No. Okay. I've been. I've had several crab themed topics. I could do a crab episode. I, I If you feel strongly about it, it's just, you know, it's like a little can I got rattling in the back. Oh, let's do a crab episode. All right, we could do I'm a crab episode. It. Yeah, I'm here for it. Everyone loves crabs. Right, we're from Maryland for, you know, come on. We're crab people. We're crab people now, Aaron. <laughs> All right, so with that decided, do you want to take us out? If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach out to us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or souppotpodcast on X. All right, sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.